Please turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you again. We pray that you would uh, please bless the preaching of your word. Uh, please teach us and instruct us and uh, build us up, Lord God, that we may know your truth, that we may believe it, Lord, unto eternal life and glorify you in all that we do. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. What is it that prevents us as creatures made in the image of God to love him and walk in all his, the commandments of God? What is the greatest obstacle that prevents us from this? What is the greatest obstacle that prevents us from entering into the kingdom of God? It is our hearts of stone. It is our unrighteous hearts. It is our hearts, our hearts that have been enslaved to sin and darkness, a heart that hates Jesus Christ, who is the light. And the solution for this is for our hearts to be replaced with new ones. Our sinful selves need to be, uh, they need to die, and we need to be born anew. We need to be raised to spiritual life in order for us to obey God spiritually. This is the important truth that is missing in all man-made religions. Every other religion has certain rules, uh, certain rituals, ceremonies, laws that must be observed in order to enter into heaven or their version of heaven. 
In essence, they are religions that presuppose that mankind can do what, it ple- what is pleasing to God. They are works-based religions because they have not understood that all mankind is, spiritual, is in spiritual darkness. All mankind is spiritually dead. And they are in desperate need of spiritual rebirth if they are to inherit the kingdom of God. This morning we see such a figure, one whom outwardly was doing what he thought would allow him entrance into the kingdom of God. Yet he is confronted with the reality and the necessity of having to be born again from above. We see this encounter with Nicodemus, in the encounter with Nicodemus and our Lord. Nicodemus goes to him as an elite Pharisee, unbelieving and unregenerate, and he hears something that he had never heard before, something that he should have known, that he must be born again. This went against the Pharisaic religion. The message of Jesus then goes against not only the Pharisaic religion, but the religion of all mankind, the worldviews of all mankind, who seek to attain righteousness, heaven, by their own works. And so as we look at this text, we will consider three major points or headings. First, the initial encounter with Jesus. Second, the ensuing response of Jesus. And then thirdly, the heavenly testimony of the divine Christ. So first, the initial encounter with Jesus. The first thing John tells us about this narrative is he introduces his character, Nicodemus. And he tells us what party or group Nicodemus belonged to. He says he was a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were not a politically or a political party. They were not politically connected, nor were they aristocratic. Their powerful influence came from their knowledge and expertise in the things of the law. They were regarded as experts and highly esteemed by the people, and as, as a result, they had indirect authority on issues regarding the law. But John also tells us that Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. Now, to be a ruler of the Jew, he had to be something more than just a Pharisee. He was not just um, a uh, the Pharisee, Pharisaic religion, because it wasn't politically tied to anything, he had to be something other than just a Pharisee. And what we have discovered, or what have commentators have, have mentioned, is that Nicodemus belonged to an elite family, an aristocratic family. So aside from being a Pharisee, he belonged to an, a, 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 an aristocratic family that was, that was very prominent. In fact, for several generations, the, the name Nicodemus... Was, was only used four times. And, and in, the, in the history of about, say, two, I believe, 200 years, those four Nicodemuses uh, that existed in this area were all related. They had to come from the same family. And so many people estimate that this Nicodemus, because it's a very rare name, was also part of a very prominent and elite aristocratic family. And so because of this, he was a ruler of the Jews, not just a Pharisee. But then John also tells us that Nicodemus had come to Jesus by night. Now, we may 
be tempted to just pass over this. But again, John gives us details for a reason. And he's telling us this for a specific reason, that, John, that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Now, some have said or, or thought that he came to Jesus because he truly believed in him. He truly believed in Christ, and he doesn't want to be seen by the other Pharisees, so he comes to him by night or in secret. Now, that's plausible because the text doesn't really tell us. But another possibility was that Nicodemus didn't actually truly believe in Christ. Um, coming to someone by night was a way to have some privacy, not to do something in secret, but to have some privacy. In the day, there would be a lot of people, a lot of commotion. It would be loud. He would be, you know, Jesus would have been interrupted by other people. And so the conversation would have been short. So Nicodemus wants to come to Jesus and have a, a, a quiet time with him. He wants his undivided attention. That's another possibility. But one, one reason that I believe uh, John is mentioning that he came by night is because he's continuing to expand on this theme of light and darkness. That he's coming to Jesus at night in the dark. G uh, Nicodemus then represents the, the darkness in this case. Because he says, when he comes to Jesus, he says, Rabbi, we know that you are from God. Now, he says, we know. Who is this we that he's referring to? It could be the we, the, or the, the many that believed in the previous chapter in verse 23. But later on, Jesus is going to counter his we and say, we know what we testify of, but you, plural, do not receive what our testimony. So what I think is going on is that Nicodemus, as a representative of the Pharisees and of the religious leaders, is coming on their behalf to ask him these questions or to ask him questions. <clears throat> and so he's representing the darkness, the darkness coming to the light that cannot comprehend the light. And we will see that play out in this uh, dialogue between Nicodemus and Jesus. So then, as we consider that, then we think about his statement. Was his statement uh, good or bad? Did he have good intentions? Well, if he's coming to Jesus as a representative of the Pharisees who do not believe him, who do not receive his testimony, then most likely he comes to Jesus with not-so-good intentions. So he says, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. And so again, what, Jesus, what Nicodemus is doing here is he is giving these honorific titles to Jesus. And one commentator says that he is, uh, in a sense, mocking or exaggerating these, these truths because he doesn't really believe them. But there is truth in this, however. Even if he does, whether he comes to him genuinely uh, saying these things or in a, in a mocking way, these things that he says, ironically, are true of Christ. He is someone from God. He is a teacher from God. And he does these things because God is with him. 
So what, he, what Nicodemus says, whether genuinely or mockingly, nevertheless turned out to be true of Jesus Christ. And so what I think is happening here is that though he comes as a representative of this unbelieving group, when he encounters Jesus, Jesus senses something in him. Because he doesn't rebuke him sharply like in other cases where people would come to Jesus and say, hey, good teacher, we know that you, know, that you are from God. And then they, they, again, they, they mock him in these things, but they're trying to test him. And here, though Jesus challenges him, he's drawing him in. There may have been some seed implanted in Nicodemus, but still he comes as a representative of this religious party that did not believe in Jesus Christ. So although they believed the things that Nicodemus said about the Messiah, that the Messiah would be a teacher that came from God, that he would do signs, and that God would be with him, they believed those things about the Messiah. They did not believe that, those, that, that Jesus was the Messiah. This is the darkness that John is trying to illustrate for us. The people can have all the evidence in the world proving the existence of God, proving that Jesus is the Christ, that he, did, he, he was raised from the dead three days later, yet people will not believe. This is the darkness of all mankind, not just of these religious leaders. This darkness, this unbelief, will get to the point that they, they will even... Uh, witness or hear about the resurrection of Lazarus, that Christ raises Lazarus from the dead. And rather than saying, that's it, we cannot deny this any longer, Christ is, or Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And rather than falling on their faces, repenting and trusting in Christ, what do they do? They plot to kill him. Seeing all that he does, all the signs that he gives them, all the, the things that he fulfills about the Messiah, and yet because they are darkness, because their hearts are darkened, they are uncircumcised, they do not believe, and instead they plot to kill him. Think about the reasoning, this reasoning, or the reasoning in this way. It would go something like this. This man is fulfilling all the prophecies of the Messiah, the one whom Moses and the law and the prophets spoke about, and he is performing great signs and wonders that are impossible unless God is truly with him, and all the people are believing him and praising God. He's even, ra he's even raising people from the dead. It's pretty obvious who this guy is. But that's not what they say. They say, we're going to have to kill him. Because in spite of all the signs, everything that's there presented before them, they still don't believe. So again, we see this later in the Gospels, but here Nicodemus is representing this darkness, this relationship between light and darkness that, that John is going to show us throughout the Gospel, that the darkness does not comprehend the light. The light can shine brightly, but the darkness will not comprehend it. It will reject it, and we'll see next week the darkness hates the light. Later on, the religious leaders will even hear about Lazarus. And again, 
not only will they plot to kill Jesus, but now they're plotting to kill Lazarus because, because of him, because he was raised from the dead. Now people are believing even more in Jesus. So signs that should have driven them to repentance and trusting in Christ only make them harder and harder, and they plot to kill the Lord. So great was their darkness. And again, this is what, what, what I believe John is illustrating here for us in Nicodemus coming as one who represents uh, the religious leaders who reject Christ, coming to him at night. But we see more of this darkness not comprehending the light in the dialogue that ensues. <clears throat> so, again, underneath uh, all of this, there may be some uh, seed of, of belief. Maybe he's truly curious, but still, Nicodemus is unbelieving. And he comes to him, challenging him. And then he hears something from Jesus that he had never heard before, something that he should have known. And this brings us to our second point, the ensuing response of Jesus. So the darkness comes, Nicodemus, as representative of that darkness, those that, that, that are unregenerate, that do not believe. And notice that he doesn't ask him a question. Right? He doesn't ask him, he just says, we know that you are from God, a teacher from God, and that you do all these things uh, because God is with you. It's not a question, it's just a statement. But Jesus answers him. Now, how, how is that possible? What, hap what happened? Well, again, Christ being divine, being the divine word, heard the words of Nicodemus, but he answered the questions in his heart. Jesus, just like with Nathaniel, and Jesus perceived his heart. He understood his heart. He knew what was in there. He knew the, the questions that were in there. And so Jesus answers those questions. Now, what Nicodemus came to Jesus with, those honorific titles and that statement that he made, those were statements that were consistent with the Messiah, the one that Moses prophesied about, the prophet, the one that would come, that God would send. But we can't separate the Messiah from the kingdom. Because the Messiah is David's greater son. He is the king of Israel. So as Nicodemus comes with this statement, in his heart is the question about the kingdom of God. And that is what Jesus picks up on. And that is what he tells him. Jesus answered him and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said this to you. You must be born again. <clears throat> Nicodemus should have known what, this, what Jesus meant by this. Uh, in Ezekiel 36 through 37, we read about the coming day of restoration, which is the time of the kingdom of God. And what Ezekiel mentions here is descriptive of that time. It is a time that God would cleanse his people by sprinkling water on them. 
Their iniquities would be washed away by, his, by this cleansing water. And this is symbolic of the Holy Spirit's work. And he goes on to say that this would be a time where God would give his people a new heart. He would take out the heart of stone and give them a new heart of flesh. Where he would put on, and he would give them a new spirit. And this would result in them walking in his statutes. Being given a new heart, a new spirit, cleansed and having uh, one's sins washed away was a picture of the new birth. It was spiritual birth. It was, in essence, it was the, the circumcision of the heart that God required of his people. All this was tied, tied to and necessary for those who would be partakers of the kingdom of God. We see this imagery in the book of Isaiah as well. And so there was no excuse for Nicodemus to not understand what this was because after Christ tells him that you must be born again, what he's thinking is, how can we go back into the womb and be born again? How is that even possible? Well, why does he say that? What, is, what, is God, or what does Christ mean by you must be born again? When Jesus tells him you must be born again, the word again has a couple meanings. It can mean again, as we see it in our, in our, in our text, but it can also mean from above, from, from heaven. And so what Jesus is saying is that one needs to be born from heaven. And we know this because he says that you need to be born of water and of spirits. Now, these are not two different births, as some would say, or, or some would say that the water here refers to baptism and, and in the spirit. No, because when Jesus explains about water and, or, uh, water and the spirit, he's using those two terms to explain what he means by the one, the one birth of being born again. And so it's, he's referring to a spiritual birth to a birth that is worked by the Holy Spirit. Thus, it is a work from heaven. It is a work from above. And therefore, it is a birth from above. And that is what Jesus is getting at. You must be born from above. You must have a spiritual birth, a birth worked by the Holy Spirit, a circumcision of the heart, which is what God, again, had required His people. We see it throughout all Scripture. God calling in the Old Testament His people, circumcise your hearts. But for us, that's impossible. We can't do it. This is a work that must be done by Jesus Christ. And so, Jesus then rebukes Nicodemus for not knowing these things. Not knowing that the time of restoration of all things, the time of the kingdom, was a time when God would wash away His people's sins, when He would give them a new heart, when He would give them a spiritual birth. He should have known these things. And so Nicodemus then is left confused because of this statement. <clears throat> But again, this just shows us that the darkness cannot understand or comprehend the light. Those that are unregenerate cannot 
see the kingdom of God. They cannot enter it. They cannot even see the kingdom of God. They are destitute of any spiritual understanding. Sure, many people can understand our words. Intellectually, they can understand what we're saying. But that's not enough to be saved. That's not enough to have a saving knowledge of Christ. That's not enough to see the kingdom. We need to have an understanding that penetrates the heart, that goes from the mind to the heart. But if we have a heart of stone, what's going to happen when the word reaches the heart? It's going to fall off. It's going to fall away. It will not penetrate the heart. Just like we see Jesus in the parable of the, of the, of the, the sower, the, the, the seeds, where the seeds that fall on, on stony ground, there's no root there. They can't grow. What must happen? God must take away that heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh that we may believe, that we may see the kingdom and believe and enter into the kingdom. And this is, a, again, it's a sovereign work of God that He performs. For us, it is impossible. And so we see here then the necessity of being born again. <clears throat> and this being born again is something that God does out of the kindness or out of His loving kindness that He has for mankind. L listen to what Paul says in Titus chapter 3. But when the, when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. So there's nothing that we could have ever done to receive God's grace, His kindness. But this salvation was according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So again, here we see the work of the Holy Spirit described as washing and renewing. It's very similar to what Jesus is saying in John 3. You must be born of water and of the Spirit. So it is the Holy Spirit's work that must work in us, and that is necessary for us to see the kingdom of God and to enter it. But what we see here also is, as I've been mentioning, the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God in salvation. We see this, for example, in verse 8 uh, of John chapter 3, where Jesus says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit's work is compared to the wind. The wind blows where it wishes, but we don't know where it's come from, where it's going. We can't control the wind. We cannot even see the wind. We can see the effects of the wind when we see the trees swaying, leaves falling off trees or, or something blowing in the wind, but we don't actually see the wind, but we see the effects of it. And that's how it is with the Holy Spirit. We don't know where, where He's going to work, where He's worked before or previously. We can't even see Him working now. 
but we do see the effects of the Holy Spirit. His working, the effects of His work when a person is convicted of their sin. When a person hears the gospel and is convicted of their sin and they see Christ, they hear the voice of the shepherd, they believe and they trust in Him and their life is changed. We see the effects though we do not see the Holy Spirit. But again, it is His will. He, he does this wherever He wills. And one thing that this is alluding back to is what John said in chapter 1. <clears throat> in verse uh, 11, He came to His own, and, his own uh, and those who were His own did not receive Him. Verse 12, But as many as received them, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. Now listen to verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John is expanding on this truth. That the children of God are not born because they come from a specific family. That would be born of blood. It's not their, their, their heritage, their lineage, their descendants, their, their descendants or their, where they descend from. It's, it's not that. It's not family. It's not tied to the family. Uh, nor is it the will of the flesh. They're not born again because, of, because they've reasoned themselves into the, into the kingdom. You cannot reason yourself into the kingdom. We see the reasoning of the Jews, of the, of the religious leaders, and how they reasoned falsely because they hated the light. They were darkness. So it's not by that and it's not by the will of man or the will of, uh, of the husband or the head of the house. What is it then? How do children of God become children of God? It's because they are born of God. He is the one that causes us to be born again. He is the one that gives us this spiritual birth. And he, the Holy Spirit is what works in us to circumcise our hearts and to cause us to be born again. Not only did Jesus then speak of earthly things, but he also testified of heavenly things. Jesus was a true witness of what he had seen because, as we find out or as we read in, in John 1, he came from the Father. This brings us to our last and final point, the heavenly testimony of the divine Christ. <clears throat> Verse 13, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In verses 13 through 15, Jesus explains to Nicodemus why his testimony is true. The testimony that Nicodemus and the religious leaders are not accepting. He explains to him why his testimony is true. It is because he speaks as one with authority. Because he is divine. He is the divine word of God. His origins are divine. His testimony is not secondhand, but firsthand. He is the one who, who was with God the Father in eternity, as we see in John 1.1. He is the one who is in the bosom of the Father and who explains the Father, and we see this in, verse, uh, in John 1.18. So he comes from the Father. 
And so because he sees these things, he knows these things, he is divine, he has this authority to testify. And what he says is true. And this is, again, this is the light that enlightens all men. Nicodemus was confronted with this light and he had to make a choice. <clears throat> but sadly, because again, because of our states, because of our, the hardness of our heart, we reject this light. We do not comprehend it and we reject it. Jesus is the one who has descended from heaven and he is the one who will ascend back to heaven he is the Son of Man. This title describes Jesus as the Messiah, the true man that God would send, but this title also has divine connotations. We saw this title used in, 1, in John 1, verse 51, where Jesus tells his disciples that they would see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And we noted that this was an allusion to Genesis 28 in Jacob's Ladder. And that this pointed to Jesus as a divine gateway to heaven. He was the way to see God. It is only through Christ that we can see God and in this case now enter into the kingdom. Here, he is the one who descends and ascends to heaven. So he speaks with one with authority because he is divine. But why, what is the purpose in this discussion, in this dialogue, in, in what Jesus tells Nicodemus? It's consistent with John, the, the evangelist's uh, purpose in writing the gospel. It is that Nicodemus and those that hear would believe. <clears throat> and we see this in verse 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will, will in him have eternal life. It is for the purpose of the salvation of his people. In the book of Numbers 21, we read of the people, the Israelites, sinning against God by grumbling and complaining. So what does the Lord do? He sends fiery serpents as judgment on the people. And many people were dying. And so after confessing their sin, Moses speaks with God and God provides deliverance for them by, uh, for, for, from the fiery serpents by telling Moses to erect a, a bronze serpent and to put it on a flagpole. And when, the, when a person was bit by a fiery serpent, all they had to do was look at that, fire, at that serpent, the bronze serpent, and they would live. They would not die. This event was typological. It was a type. It was pointing to God's ultimate salvation, His ultimate deliverance. Here, the people were bitten or were bit by a snake, by a fiery serpent. They died physically. We have been bit by sin. We will die spiritually. God provided for them physical life by looking at the bronze serpent. But God, in Christ, in Christ being lifted up, God provides eternal life. And that is the ultimate purpose for writing this. And this is, this is what, what Christ has in mind. And he will go into this more in verse 16. 
And we will talk about it more there. But this is the purpose. So that people would look to Christ and be saved. That is the only way. And it is through being born of water and spirit that we can see Christ, that we can believe in Christ and have eternal life. So, as we conclude, we have seen that being born again is not an option. It is necessary for anyone who desires to enter into the kingdom of God. But we have also seen that this spiritual birth is a sovereign work of God. That is, it is purely of God's authoritative power, His loving and gracious and merciful authoritative power that He causes us to be born again. Without this great work, all our attempts at following God's commands are futile. We see this in the history of the nation of Israel. Though there were true believers within Israel, many of them, most of them, throughout its history, did not have this spiritual birth, this circumcision of their hearts. And they constantly strayed away. They went after other gods. They could not obey. And when God sent them His only begotten Son, what did they do to Him? They crucified Him. But it was in this action, in this ultimate act of rebellion that God provided salvation in lifting up His Son, in, in placing upon Him our sins, giving to Him the punishment that we deserve so that we could have eternal life. In our fallen state, we cannot please God. We cannot work our way into the kingdom of God. We can't even see the kingdom of God. And though it may, it may sound despairing and hopeless, there is great hope. Because what we cannot do because of our fallen and sinful condition, God did through Jesus Christ. Christ lived the perfect life for all those who believe in Him. His life is counted as theirs. He took upon Him their sin and their, and their imperfection and was punished in their place. And though we can't do anything to save ourselves, you can call out to the Lord. He promises that all those who call upon His name will be saved. God is a God who delights in saving sinners. It doesn't matter how much you've sinned or how great you have sinned. God's grace is greater. Look to Him. Ask Him to give you understanding. Ask Him to give you a new heart so that you may see and believe. Go to Him, for He is your only hope. Jesus Himself says, Come to Me, and I will give you rest. And for those of us who have believed, we began our spiritual life in the Spirit. Let us continue in the Spirit. The great danger is to think that we don't need the Holy Spirit's help anymore. We can, you know, we can say, you know, well, thank you for saving us. Thank you for causing us to be uh, born again. But we can take it from here. We're, we're good now. No. Any progress in our sanctification is only because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we need to strive. We need to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling, as Paul says. But all of this is ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So we were brought forth into the world spiritually by the Spirit. We were given spiritual life by the Holy Spirit, and it is He that will sustain us. We need to rely on, on Him, and we do this by continually going back 
to the one whom the Holy Spirit led us to, Jesus Christ. Refresh yourself in the gospel daily. Immerse yourself in the blood of Christ daily. Read his word daily. And the Holy Spirit will take that and impart grace, increase faith, provide the strength needed, and produce the fruit. So whether you are devoid of spiritual life or have been given spiritual life, the answer is the same. Look to Christ. Call out to him. Ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. And Christ will by no means cast you out.